Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Three weeks ago, we spoke with Ron Dalton, co-president of Innocence Canada, about innocent Canadians being convicted of crime and the presence of capital punishment in the criminal justice systems. South Carolina, a judge in South Carolina, is going to decide in the next few days, listen to this, if firing squad or electrocution death penalties are acceptable. Four death row inmates argued this week that prisoners would feel terrible pain either way. State lawyers argue the condemned would feel no pain. From 1995 to 2011, South Carolina carried out the death penalty on 36 people, all by lethal injection. Now, the state's supply of lethal drugs expired in 2013, and pharmaceutical companies have refused to sell more lethal injection drugs to them. So Ron Dalton is back with us, co-president of Innocence Canada, who was wrongfully convicted of second-degree murder of his wife and who spent almost nine years in prison before the circumstances of his guilty verdict and the methods used to charge Mr. Dalton and convict Mr. Dalton were found to be at great fault. They're wrong. Innocence Canada works constantly to help individuals in Canadian prisons who are innocent to be returned to freedom. And uh, currently, Innocence Canada has 10 cases before the federal justice minister. So back with us is Ron Dalton. Ron, thank you very much for for taking the time. Um, when you hear the story, like the story that's coming out of South Carolina, what, what's your thinking right away? Well, first, good afternoon, Roy, to you and your listeners. Uh, we, we hear a lot about the death penalty in the U.S., and, and I'm not sure that the method matters all that much. Most of the research suggests that a firing squad may be more efficient and and painless uh, compared to uh, electrocutions, uh, particularly when they go wrong. But from from my own personal point of view, of course, I, I can't condone the, best, the death penalty anywhere, knowing that the courts do get it wrong. Yeah. There's, there's just too much potential there to execute innocent people. Yeah. You've been a guest on this program on several occasions. I have. David Milgard, who sadly died a few months ago, spent 23 years in prison, for a murder he did not commit, was on this show. Robert Baltovich, who spent eight years in prison for a murder he did not commit. All, all of you have been guests with me. Others as well. Ron, let's just get to the chase here. Are there convicted individuals in prison across this country who are innocent of the crimes they were convicted of? Absolutely. I, I was one of those that you mentioned. A couple of others, uh, David, in particular, I mean, David was convicted back in 1969 at a time when this country still had a death penalty. Ten years before David's conviction, we convicted a 14-year-old Stephen Truscott to yeah. hang by the neck until dead yeah. for a, a crime that he did not commit, death of a 12-year-old classmate. So, yes, there's, there certainly are uh, individuals in our prison systems who are innocent, which means in, in many instances that there are people who have committed uh, murder who are running free 
and, and David Milgard's case is always one of the better examples of that. Uh, while David spent 23 years in prison and a further six years on parole before we were able to exonerate him and prove his innocence, the actual perpetrator, Larry Fisher, had 30 years to run amok in, in society. So not only is the individual and their family suffering horrendously for wrongful convictions, but the the public at large is, is put at risk. Yeah, the public at large is very much at risk because it happened to you, but under the circumstances that happened to you and in which your wife lost her life, that could have been anybody anywhere, any postal code in Canada. That's sad but true, Roy. Uh, we, uh, you mentioned that we currently have 10 cases in front of the Justice Minister in, in Ottawa for review and relief, hopefully. Uh, those are cases where we've demonstrated the person's innocence, and the only remedy then is to go to the federal minister and get him to overturn the conviction, uh, possibly order a retrial, which quite often doesn't go ahead. Uh, but on top of that, we have another 109 cases that we're reviewing in our office at Innocence Canada. And we're a small nonprofit organization, so we have limited resources. So we do the best we can, but there is no other national organization doing this type of work in this country. So when all of your appeals have appeals have failed, the court system has uh, got it wrong repeatedly. By the time the case gets to us, we're, we're the last chance you have it. And sometimes we work on cases for many, many years. Uh, I mentioned to you the other day that, uh, that we're currently finalizing a case for two gentlemen that I served time with 30 years ago. Back in, in 1990 and 91, I was uh, typing up letters and, and helping these guys with a bit of paperwork, uh, writing to the, the media and to their lawyers, and we're just now uh, getting to the point where we hope to have their cases resolved within the next six months or so. And you weren't well, just a visitor to the prison, you were in there. Well, you're, you're there. You, you do what you can to help people if, yeah. if you can. You've know, yeah. you got to mind your own business and keep your mouth shut for the most part. It's a, a good way to get through a place like that. Yeah. But if I was able to help out a little bit, even if it was only writing a letter or uh, doing a little bit of correspondence or something for somebody, I, I tried to do that as well. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that you weren't going into the prison as a representative of Innocence Canada, you were convicted yourself. You were in that prison, you were innocent of the crime you'd been convicted of, and you were helping people at that time in 90 and 91 who were also convicted of a crime they did not commit. Our, our, our organization, Innocence Canada, was, was previously known as the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted. Yeah. We just shortened our name up a few years ago to try and make it a little more representative, but we didn't exist as an organization until 1993. So I, I went into uh, the federal prison system in 1989, so yes, three or four years before our organization existed. And there were other people. Joyce Milgard, for example, was working diligently on David's case. Yes, she was. Uh, Joyce, Joyce, being his mother, of course, was working diligently on David's case before Innocence Canada existed. Now, when she was successful in getting David paroled, uh, Innocence Canada got involved, and, and we were able to do some early in those days, 30 years ago, DNA testing that eventually uh, demonstrated clearly and, and convincingly that uh, David had no part in this crime and was also able to identify the actual perpetrator, which is not the business that Innocence Canada is in. We're not there to solve crimes, but sometimes it's a secondary product of the work we do in, in proving your innocence. We may prove someone else's guilt. And it was DNA evidence 
that exonerated you. They found out eventually, they found out that you had not committed the crime. You, you, your wife died. You're mourning for your wife, the mother of your three children, and you're uh, facing um, a less than competent medical system and a less than competent justice system that put their pieces together in a faulty manner and sent you to prison for, for murder. Correct. Now, the, the only correction there is, is it was not DNA that was finally exonerated me. It was a, an accumulation of expert forensic opinions, just saying that the original pathologist who conducted my wife's autopsy uh, was not qualified, didn't know what he was doing, and, and couldn't justify the conclusions that he that he raised. Yeah, he'd never done one before, right? Uh, no, no. And then we had a and hospital. you go to prison. <laughs> we, we had a medical student in charge of the uh, emergency room at the hospital who had never put a breathing tube or intubated a live patient who attempted it and, and ended up putting a tube into her stomach rather than towards her her uh, lungs and inflated her like a balloon. But oh the, the reality is that once the system, the pathologist, the police, have their mind made up and they're heading in a certain direction, uh, it's easier to turn the Titanic around and, and avoid the iceberg than it is to get them to change their minds and admit that they may have been wrong. All they had to do in, in my particular case was get a second opinion from someone who was qualified, and they would have known that there was no crime committed. But they had we, you. We've had a number of cases like that. Uh, we, we had a series of Charles Smith cases in Ontario. Uh, Smith was practicing as a pediatric forensic pathologist, again, without any formal training, and he got several cases wrong. He found crimes where there were none. Yeah. These are children that, you know, crib deaths and, and other things. I remember. He was thinking were uh, homicides, and, and in some cases people spent a dozen years or more in, in prison, lost custody of their children, horrendous stories. Destroys lives. They're actually being convicted for crimes that didn't occur. In cases like the Milgard case, uh, you know, there was a crime, they just got the wrong person. Ron, I'm going to take a quick break here, then when we come back, I want to talk to you about it. And we want to let people know how they can become engaged with Innocence Canada, because the work you're doing is so fundamentally essential but I also want to ask you what it's like to wake up in prison day after day, month after month, year after year, knowing you're innocent of murdering your wife, which, which is what they which is what they convicted you of. You wake up every day, you know you're innocent. Just very quickly, said this to you the other day. I talked to David Milgard um, when we first started conversing many years ago, and I asked him, David, when they came to you after 15 years in prison and they said to you, just confess to the to the murder. Just 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 plead guilty to the murder, and we'll 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 parole you. And he wouldn't do it. And I asked him, why didn't you? You spent another eight years of your life in prison. And his answer was so simple and so eloquent. He said, I didn't do it. That's the reality, Roy. Yeah, Ron. When you woke up every morning, every day for eight years knowing you had not committed any crime, let alone murder your wife. What's that like? Well, Roy, I, I tend to go back to David Milgard again. My, my friend David was very, uh, very quotable. I've heard David speak. I've, I've spoken with him on occasion. He always described prison as a horrible place, and he's right. Uh, whether you're guilty or innocent, prison is a horrible place to be spending your time. Ten times worse if you're there uh, undeservedly. In my own particular case, I still had my three children uh, back in the real world, outside of prison, living with my sister and her husband and their three children, and they were in touch with 
their family members on my wife's side and, and my side. So I had a little something to focus on on the other side of the prison walls. So I didn't get quite as despondent and, and wrapped up in some of the games that go on inside of the, of the prison world and, and particularly in maximum security prisons. So that gave me a little lifeline to the real world, I used to say, and that helped me get through it. But it's it's a very difficult place to be. It's, it's a lot of wasted time. There's enforced idleness, all kinds of things that I wasn't used to. And then, of course, the fact that you don't belong there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. How do you decide at Innocence Canada that you will accept someone's argument, accept their case, represent them, to try to get them um, declared innocent, or at least have their case reviewed? It's, it's a long and difficult process most of the time. We rarely have DNA evidence to go on. Even in David's case, David Milgard's case, it took six years to get the DNA evidence processed because it was fairly early, back in the early 90s when, when that happened. Now we have access to DNA testing a little quicker. So on those rare occasions where we have DNA evidence, we can move somebody to the front of the line and push it through to the minister and say, this this looks wrong. More often, we have to evaluate cases that have been, uh, where the person has been found guilty by a jury, usually of, of their peers after a trial. They've been through one or two levels of appeal at least and lost on all of those. So we're starting over way behind the eight ball. The person is no longer considered presumed innocent. They're just the opposite. They're presumed to be guilty. The onus is then on the client or on, on us as the representative to demonstrate their innocence. And that's tough to do, particularly on cases like the one that I, I mentioned of these two gentlemen that. Uh, uh, I was working on their case 30 years ago. Their case has been going on for 38 years. Gee. So you can just imagine trying wow. to go back and finding original documents, trying to talk to witnesses who may longer may no longer be alive. It's a very, very uphill process. And we make sure that we uh, turn over all the rocks, do a very thorough investigation before we ever go to the minister and say, listen, we believe we have a case of innocence here because we don't want to tarnish our own reputation. We have, happen to have an enviable batting record uh, we haven't had a case that we've sent up that has not been successful, but we've spent years and years developing some of these cases. And once again, we're doing all this as a nonprofit uh, organization. Uh, so anybody out there that would like to help out Innocence Canada, we, we have a website. You simply uh, uh, search the, uh, the term Innocence Canada, and our website will pop up. We're constantly fundraising, as most nonprofits are. You spend half of your time raising funds to exist, and the other half then trying to do the good work that you're doing. Innocence Canada, and uh, just do a search, and you'll find it. And uh, if you can contribute, they do just absolutely tremendous work. And we're not talking about getting the Paul Bernardos of the world out. I, oh. I told you the other day when we were talking, it wouldn't bother me a bit if they slipped a noose over his head. Um, but, you know, it's, it's people who are innocent. It's people who don't deserve to be in prison, who did not commit a crime. And the system and convicted them. The, the other side of that coin that gets missed sometimes is... We're also helping when we, when we get an innocent person, an innocent person out of prison. Yeah. We allow the police and the prosecutors to focus on getting the the crime properly investigated and prosecuted. Yeah, if true. Wrong the first time. There's probably somebody out there who's got away with murder as well. Yeah. Well, well, Larry Fisher, right? Larry Fisher is a prime example, sure. If you want to hear more. Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.